This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes that which are, are incidental, incidental or additional to the main, the main topic. topic in the margin of a book. In Hannah Lilith Asadi's novel, The Stars Are Not Yet Bells, readers learn the story of Elle's marriage to Simon and their consequent move to an island off the coast of Georgia. Readers learn of family secrets, both Elle's and Simon's, and readers discover through Elle's memories parts of her 50 years on the island. And yet readers must not be blamed if any skepticism arises during the reading journey. You see, the novel's narrator is Elle, and Elle suffers from dementia. I recently spoke with Hannah Lilith Asadi about The Stars Are Not Yet Bells and the experience of assuming the lens of one whose memory is skewed. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Can you give our listeners a brief description of the novel? Sure. I guess my elevator pitch of it is that it's about a woman who's suffering the early stages, a dementia-type illness, although it isn't quite named in the novel. And as her mind begins to sort of go, or her memories, her short-term memory starts to dissipate, memories from her past started to flood her and simultaneously she begins to sort of see into this other possibly magical or supernatural realm that begins to kind of inhabit or even supersede the reality of the island where she lives. That would be generally what I would say it's about. Very hard for me to describe what anything I write is about, but well, can you talk to me a little bit about, okay, so your main character, her name is Elle, and she lives on this island off the coast of Georgia with her husband, Simon. And I understand that you were inspired by, uh, you know, the story of your own grandparents' marriage. Is that right? Yes. Though they lived in a small town in Alabama on the border of Florida. So a little bit different geographically, not too different, but not coastal. Um, but yes, I was inspired by their story, although this novel departs significantly from the facts of their life. You're writing this mainly, I mean, it's it's Elle's perspective. How do you assume the lens of somebody whose memory is skewed like that? I mean, that was the great challenge of the novel to write such an unreliable narrator. I mean, she's our only narrator and it's the only perspective through which we are made to understand the events of the novel. You know, I think the reader is to assume that you're not getting the full picture, the actual story. You know, often her depression is referred to by others, right, that she had kind of suffered from major mental illness throughout her life. Although the way that she narrates it is quite different, right? And that's maybe the case for us all, that we narrate our own lives to ourselves differently than others do of us. And that's sort of the great devastation sometimes in our hearing of what others may actually think about us. So I think the great challenge obviously was to inhabit somebody with an illness that I don't have and hopefully will never have. But I think fundamentally it was just about telling a story from just one person's perspective and how it would look given the limitations of the illness and how to make dialogue from the other characters give the reader a broader sense of the actual story of this life. But sometimes limitations are helpful too, right? I mean, it was both a challenge, but also it gave me a structure within which to work. Sometimes I think having too much freedom (laughs) as a writer is sometimes also difficult. So in that way, it was a challenge, but also gave me some freedom. 
I was going to comment first, you know, on the dialogue uh, that others were having and some of the things that they would say right in front of her, because in their minds, they were able to get away with it because her memory was was so spotty. And so they would say a lot of things that, you know, you probably wouldn't say in front of somebody who is perfectly of sound mind. But then I also was was thinking as I was reading it, just how, you know, these are her memories, these are what's going on in her mind, and, and there must be a freedom with that, that you could just kind of, you know, go with this storyline and then just drop it <laughs> because she comes back to reality. So I was thinking those things as I was reading it. It was just really well done. I, I'm curious, in your mind, when thinking about the state of Elle's memory when she is in her 70s, are we talking, you know, a dementia type thing or are Simon and Dr. Madera to blame? Um, well, and I think that's also, right, the tricky thing. It's implied by the daughter and some of the other characters and Ethel, certainly, that his decision to medicate Elle is partly to blame, right? And that there's been this recall of the drug that they designed based on the kind of elements that are found on the island. So I think it's supposed to be sort of ambiguous. I mean, I think that's the way that I conceived it, right? That like, yeah, who's to blame here? Is she suffering from an illness she would have been diagnosed with anyways? Is she severely depressed, right? And sort of now, you know, fallen into this sort of escape, this way of kind of confronting her own life? Or is it that her husband and the doctor who she had seen, like, medicated her incorrectly or at least didn't know the consequences of the drugs they were giving her and so in some way yes they are to blame although I don't think Simon is certainly meant to be or and I can't I can't interpret for any reader but to be an antagonist here I think he's a very loving husband in his way and was only trying his best to remedy a situation that seemed that could never be fixed, right? That she was just never happy. And I think that's repeated over and over again by him and others. So um, yeah, I think it's tricky. I'm going to read a line from the book. Perhaps the seasons are on the brink of ending completely to make way for a fifth time of year, one when the sky and the sea no longer have a barrier. And I noticed that the book was divided into five parts, spring, summer, fall, winter, and then a fifth part. Can you talk to me about these seasons and, and the idea of five seasons? Sure. I mean, I think uh, most simply, right, that she's sort of still locked in time the way that you and I are um, for the first four sections of the book. And then in the fifth, as she departs from this reality and, you know, obviously the end, which I won't reveal, (laughs) um, she's entering, let's say, uh, optimistically, a new one, right? That's sort of all metaphorical or representative of that fifth season, right? That she's sort of leaving this timescape, as it were, these seasons that recur. So that's the most optimistic way I can put the reasoning behind that structure. Um, I want to talk about setting for a, a minute. I looked it up. I couldn't find a, a Lyra, Georgia. No, so I'm assuming no. it's made up. So, you know, is it based on a real location? I mean, I'm wondering what kind of research you had to do to be able to present it so vividly to the reader. Um, so, yeah, I, we visited, um, my partner and I visited Cumberland Island in late 2017. So I think certainly the setting is inspired by Cumberland Island and sort of the Carnegie history there. Dungeness burned down, 
in the 50s. And also there was a mansion that sat on that site 100 years earlier, which also burnt down. So a lot of the sort of little anecdotes about the island are culled from Cumberland. And, you know, the oak and the way the sea looks there and kind of how uninhabited it is now. But Lyra, I guess, is also its own. And there's a bit taken from a little bit from my grandparents, the town where my grandparents lived in Alabama. But certainly it had to be, you know, it had to be kind of its own own constellation in space. And it's named after a constellation um, for it to work with everything I was kind of trying to do with it. Was Cumberland L's maiden name? Yes. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> there's a little, yeah, there's a little nod to the island itself. Yeah. You know, much of Elle's journey through life is determined by men, uh, you know, her father, Gabriel, the doctor. But Elle's relationship with Ethel is a bit different. Can you talk to me about female friendships and how this particular relationship impacts Elle? Yeah, so I think their friendship is obviously quite complicated. There's, you know, a, a work dynamic and that Ethel is the help, right? Also a racial dynamic, also a class dynamic between them, right? So it's a very complicated relationship. Um, at the same time, they've both experienced very different, though similar things because Ethel has lost her loved one. I won't get into it as has Elle to similar sort of reasons, let's say, right? Or uh, similar delusions, maybe, as it were. And I think, you know, I think that they're in some ways they are allies, but they're also foils to one another because Ethel emerges from this very differently than Elle does. And I won't get into how, you know, <laughs> how that plays out. But I think, yeah, I feel like maybe she's the only person that sort of tells Elle the truth. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> You know, there's a lot that we do not understand about diseases like Alzheimer's and dementia. Is there something that you'd like readers to take away from this book regarding the way we treat and interact with those living with the disease? So, uh, yeah, I mean, I won't feign to be any sort of to give medical uh, professionals any advice, but I do, I do think that maybe the hope for the book, right, or the, you know, the idealistic hope for the book is that although this character is suffering from this awful disease, that she is possibly, right, seeing into something the rest of us can't see, right, and that the possibility of magic even in this, you know, tremendous despair of her condition. So, Maybe just that we, you know, with our loved ones, I don't know that medical professionals can, um, they have a lot to uh, contend with there, but, you know, that with our own loved ones, that we take more time to listen. I think often with elderly patients and with our own parents and, you know, people we're dealing with, we just sort of start to treat them only, you know, treat only the condition, right? And forget the kind of, larger humanity and larger stories that comprise this person um, that's still there. So yeah, just a little more empathy. <laughs> well, and I also felt like um, maybe there was a message and we should listen to children. I mean, Zelda with, yeah. with her, her wonderful stories and, and Elle would listen, but Simon would, 
you know, he was a little bit frustrated with it. So I really loved that little storyline as well. Sure. And like the, you know, Zelda is such a sort of a reflection of L later, right? And that they both see or at least narrate having seen the same characters and the same fairy, you know, ocean fairies and um, mermaids, you know, that they're both kind of able to allow mythology into their lives and sort of this supernatural element, which the sort of, yeah, the adults <laughs> um, forget or ignore. But yeah, certainly I feel like we should listen to children more. And definitely Zelda's, at least the her fairy phase is definitely inspired by my listening to children. So, so you were named um, five under 35 by the National Book Foundation. Does that add pressure to you as a writer? Oh, um, well, what doesn't add pressure to one as a writer? <laughs> I mean, I think that was a, you know, a tremendous honor and a huge surprise for me. And certainly, I think the fact that my first novel was uh, well received in that way adds a certain amount of pressure. But, you know, uh, this work is just hard and it's not always celebrated. And I think that's its own, you know, that's that's enough pressure in and of itself. So just start to think about all the other elements. Uh, someone might not might go crazy and not go on with it. But um, yeah, yeah, it adds pressure. But that, I think that's the good kind of pressure. And then there's a lot of bad kind of pressure. So. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to talk about um, regarding the book that I haven't asked? You know, I was thinking about it last night because I hadn't really, um, you know, I hadn't looked at it in a while, which is a funny thing that you spend a lot of time looking and revising and getting sick to death of your own book <laughs> because you have to work on it for so long. That um, it had been a while since I looked at it and I was thinking like, Somebody will probably ask me, like, what do the blue lights and the blue stones, you know, the blue gems mean? You know, and I was thinking that it was funny because I don't know that I really know. I mean, I think that um, there's a way in which this book is about money. There's a way in which this book is about, um, you know, the transcendent or call it God or call it, you know, the goddess, call it whatever you want. Right. Um, and that maybe it's like that metaphor is all of these things, but that I don't even really understand <laughs> what the metaphor is, is maybe part of the point, right? That um, maybe only LL understands it eventually, right? So uh, I think that would be the only thing, other thing I would say. <laughs> well, the book is The Stars Are Not Yet Bells. Congratulations, it's beautiful. Thank you, Beth. and. Uh... I look forward to, I mean, I'll, I'll probably never listen to this because I can't listen to myself, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I hope other people enjoy it. That was Hannah Lilith Asadi, author of the book, The Stars Are Not Yet Bells, which was published by Riverhead Books. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens and our producer is Haley Krausen. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. Mm -hmm.